0: Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. We record each episode before a live audience. There's only one rule, no sound bites.
1: This is a new venue for us. Thank you to Eli's for hosting us. This is awesome. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about hacking and tech and criminal defense and the law and all that weird stuff. I got to know Mark a little bit when I was covering the Matthew Keyes trial and sentencing uh, last year. Matthew Keyes was a journalist, is a journalist, uh, who is currently incarcerated in Atwater, California. He was convicted of hacking. He was tried out of Sacramento for having passed along a password to the Capital A Anonymous hacking group. And... That password was used to briefly deface an article on the LA Times website, and for this crime, he was sentenced to 24 months in prison. Mark was amongst the lawyers that that helped represent Matthew Keyes, uh, among other folks. And so, what I'd like to do tonight is to help, you know, myself and and Dave and, and folks that are here to better understand a little bit about how, you know, how does a case like that originate? How do you get a client like Matthew Keyes? You know, what's the first thing that you learn about, about something like that? What's the, what's the procedure that goes forward?
2: Tor and I started working together. Tor Eklund, Tor is Tor Eklund, you know, known by many of you as the hacker's lawyer, my colleague and law partner in, in Brooklyn, New York. Tor and I went to law school together, but didn't meet until many years later because our children went to the same school. And around the time that I left a law firm I was working for, and he left a law firm, a big law firm that he was working for, which is really unsatisfying. He he, he started his own thing and he kind of wrote me in to do it. So it was he and I in a small office in the Dumbo part of Brooklyn. One journalist called it the smallest office he had ever seen. And he and I were sharing it with an office assistant. But it was nice because it was part of a it was it was a part of Brooklyn where we would literally get, like, knock on the door business. Hey, you're a lawyer? Look at this. And we did contracts, and we did somebody's copyright infringement action based on his knocking on our door. One day, his then-wife met a guy named Andrew Arnheimer at an Occupy Wall Street protest. She's uh, an incredible photojournalist, and they got to talking. And it was Andrew Arnheimer's weave. And some of you might have heard of it, because that was the first criminal case we took. He was then under indictment for infractions of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And and it was Toro had that hunch that this would be something big. He looked into it, when, when he started it, just like I am, we didn't know anything about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We, we had no affiliation with, with hackers. He and I were not coders, and we didn't know cool um, hacker coders speak, but he, he really did have this premonition and this hunch that we were onto something big with it. So uh, we took that case, we took that pro bono, figuring that this would pay off in the attention that we get from it, which, which turned out to be true. Losing a trial, but doing a federal criminal trial, which is not something that newer lawyers easily get that experience in. We were a long way off from ever getting that experience at the law firms that we were in. So we did that, and uh, we ultimately won that on appeal. It was, as I recall, Andrew Arnheimer who contacted Tor and said, this guy, Matthew Keyes, has been indicted. You should contact up and tell him you're going to represent him. So it's just a referral? Kind of like a <laughs> referral. I, 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 I avoid using the word referral because there's no, there's no fees involved and sure. lawyers have a big thing. you know, are yeah. professional responsibility things. It was a recommendation, I, I prefer to say. And in fact, we can't even like solicit. There are strong prohibitions, especially in New York, about soliciting. So um, we can't just go and call somebody, like, like better call Sullivan's and hit them up. Hey, I hear you've been arrested for this. I hear you, you know, you're being sued for this. I want to represent you. New York is really prohibitive about anything they think that's all akin to ambulance chasing. But apparently we're allowed to do it if we're volunteering to be pro bono. So Tor just went and, and contacted Matthew Keys and said her to be arrested. Well, why don't we take it on? And he agreed to do that. I've always been a little more of the more cautious one amongst us, and these premonitions have worked out really well. So that's, that's how we took on the Matthew Keys, and it turned out to be a fascinating thing for us. I think um, we're going to get the opportunity to really shape the law. With Arnheimer, we won at the Third Circuit. This, with, with the Keys, we're appealing. We're going to be at the Ninth Circuit, and we're going to be, Tor and I are going to be arguing at the Ninth Circuit. It's felt really good to to do this. I'm not happy that we didn't prevail at trial, that Matthew's in jail. He's having a hard time with it. He's a really good person. But I think we're doing things that help shape the law when it comes to computer crimes. It has helped our business, which is which is also really important to me because we, we've done these things pro
3: bono. So let's go over the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and, and discuss some of the things that you see Or some of the shortcomings, and maybe you could use the the Weaves case as an example as to what a prosecution could look like for hacking when perhaps no hacking was involved. And maybe even this Netflix example we discussed earlier. Okay.
2: So the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is the statutory act that the government created in the 1980s to prohibit certain wrongs that they thought could be – done with computers. At the time, what we knew about the kind of things people can do with hacking basically came from Matthew Broderick in the movie War Games. (laughs) And and what could be done really wasn't um, fully anticipated or appreciated. The statutes haven't changed much since we drafted a law signed into law by Ronald Reagan when everything we knew about hacking came from War Games. There have been, of course, many more hacker movies since then that we can learn from. But if you're familiar with Arnheimer or Weave, he is, by many objective accounts, not a likable person. And he's done a lot of things and said a lot of things that are offensive and gross and kind of horrible. And I think that's one of the reasons why the government really focused on him. What he was actually accused of, what he was actually convicted of, and that conviction was later vacated, wasn't actually that awful a thing. And uh, the word hacking actually isn't in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but what, what is in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, it's gonna prohibit unauthorized access to a protected computer. Now, a protected computer is pretty much any computer, that's not much of an issue, but what actually constitutes unauthorized access to a computer, what the statute calls access to a computer without authorization, is, is unclear at all. And you've got like years and years of case law that basically say, okay, well, access to a computer, no, we know what it means. That means without permission. Okay, well, without authorization means without permission. You basically gave me another synonym and you, you haven't helped us at all. <laughs> and when you have a statute that's vague, first of all, we believe that's unconstitutional or should be trimmed and narrowed to a very limited kind of uses, so as to not be unconstitutional, you have the perils and threats of the government being extremely selective in who they go after. So, and they thought Arnheimer was, a, was Weave, they thought Weave was a good target because he said so many genuinely horrible, and if you don't know, take my word for it, you won't disagree, things. And he also, you know, was on video acknowledging all the things he was accused of. So here's what he was accused of. A different person was trying to get into the accounts for the original people, um, subscribers for the iPads. He found that when you enter your information, you know when you have a login screen and it says use your username, and with your pa- use your, uh, here's your email address, enter your email address, enter your um, password. He found that when he entered the information, it automatically shows your email address. So what that person did was he changed the URL. He changed the number in the URL so that he saw somebody else's email address. And they did it again. He found somebody else's email address. So he had Arnheimer, they only did this on a chat room, write a script that would make that URL, the brute, the brute force they call it go so rapidly that they wound up with 100,000 email addresses. And these were the first round of um, iPad subscribers, which included the mayor and included people at Washington Post and included people at some really high up thing. But all we got was email addresses, no passwords. They never actually accessed anybody's email accounts. They just got what you could have got by plugging numbers into a URL and wrote a program that would make it go really fast. So what they do with that? Well, Andrew Anheimer took that entire list, emailed some of those people, and said, ha ha, I got your email. Want to know how I stole it? Contact us, because they wanted their own um, security research company to build that. And then he forwarded the entire list to Gawker, the, the blog, and Gawker ran the story. Not long after that, the feds barged into his house, and they charged him under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. They alleged that by writing the script and accessing the email addresses, they access personal information, and then they entered into a protected computer without authorization. In this case, this was AT&T. And we did a lot of discovery on this, more than... um, If anybody's familiar with civil procedure and lawyering, when you do a civil lawsuit, you get a lot. Of opportunity to use discovery in criminal, you don't get much opp- that much opportunity. You have to really fight for it. But we made we put subpoenas on AT and T, and I thought they'd tell us to go fuck ourselves, and in in legal jargon of some kind, and they actually gave us stuff, and it was really helpful. AT and T actually apparently didn't think this was a big deal, but the government did. Um, well, so,
1: but that leads me sort of to I think the the tail part of David's question, which is, are you concerned, either in Weave or Keys or maybe more generally, that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act could be used for prosecuting something
2: yes. relatively minor? Yes. Okay. In this case, you know, we even had a lot of people support him that say, I don't like him, but I don't think what he did was wrong. I don't think what he did was actually unauthorized access to a computer. Because if they can get you for something, you put it on a URL, they can get somebody something else. And, and, and did, even many people know what a URL is. You don't have to be a
3: hacker. And he didn't get, he didn't get the passwords to their no, addresses. It was just not. the physical email address. That's right. That's, that's
2: it. it. That that the government argued was personal information under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. You know, under it, it, and it also it, that really depends how liberal an interpretation you consider personal information to be because the statute says personal information it doesn't says it doesn't say confidential information but you know your hair color is personal information your <laughs> name is personal information
3: and so his conviction was overturned not because a court found that hey this wasn't hacking it was because he was charged in the wrong venue
2: that's right this this i love this actually um he was charged in new jersey Now, he was in Arkansas at the time. His co-conspirator was, was, I believe, in California. We looked up the servers in AT&T. We found that they were, I think, in Virginia and Texas. I don't remember exactly, but I'm sure it was nothing. And, And Gawker was in New York, and anybody emailed was in New York. Why was it in New Jersey? Well, the Constitution says in two different places that you have to be charged in the district where the crime occurred. It's in two different places. It's in Article Three, and it's also in the um, in the Bill of Rights. And from the very beginning, we we thought there was no basis for New Jersey, no basis to try him in New Jersey, and we let the government know that long before there was a trial. You give us something to let us know that he was in New Jersey, or something occurred in New Jersey, and maybe we can drop this. The constitutional law says if the government can find some place where it occurred, that's good enough. Wouldn't have to be the best place or the best venue, but it had to be something. And we got nothing. We even looked for it and we found nothing. So we moved to dismiss on a number of grounds. Most of them were exciting computer fraud and abuse act grounds, things that got everybody, Ars Technica and, and EFF and all these people excited about it. But one of them was the venue issue, which of course we, we, we prevailed at. What the government said was, at the time, was that there were 100,000 emails that he accessed. Some of them were email addresses of people in New Jersey. And therefore, the crime occurred in New Jersey. <laughs> that, that, I'm not kidding, that's exactly, that's all they argued, that was it. And, and we thought that was nonsense, but the judge bought it on the motion to dismiss, and we proceeded to trial. Later on, we argued over the jury instructions, which turned out to be really important. If we didn't argue it again at the end of trial, we might not have been able to get the conviction vacated, but the point was we had we had we had objected at every single time we can. When we did the appeal, the, having lost the motion to dismiss, I mean, our client actually took the stand and said he did all these things and was was kind of obnoxious doing it. So, having lost the motion to dismiss, it wasn't wasn't very likely that we we're going to prevail at trial. We got Orrin Kerr to do the oral argument. He's a really renowned professor and who's called attention for years about problems with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, long before Tor and I were in on it. And when he got to the oral argument, there's a funny asterisk to the story, but I'll tell you, the point was the court indicated all they cared about was the venue argument. All they cared about was whether or not he was tried in New Jersey. And um, the government came up with new arguments. They said, uh, well, when the FBI guy looked at it, he was in New Jersey. It was really weak, and that was, the ol- that was the only thing the Third Circuit Court of Appeals about, and that's how we got him vacated, a year into his conviction, and got him out of jail. And some people wrote about it, and they wrote, ah, the Court of Appeals punts on the exciting issues or the important issues, and, I, and my v- opinion was, yeah, we didn't get any rulings on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, except for a really important footnote in that opinion. But we're talking about the Constitution here. It's not a technicality. It's a really important provision of the Constitution that says you have to be tried where the, where the crime occurred. And the government argued though well, this is harmless error, right? Harmless error is a doctrine that says it comes up in Fourth Amendment context sometimes. Oh, this basically, they're basically a court saying, well, the judge would have convicted you anyway if we excluded this. And I said, no, you can't have harmless error. This is like if you, they didn't let you have a lawyer or they didn't let you have a jury, which is never going to be harmless error. I wasn't there with the argument that day. I had to stay back in the, in the um, office and do, you know, paying work of the business and all of that. And the feds went and visited us. The FBI came. Is that normal? <laughs> no. <laughs> Is that normal? I don't know if it's normal. It's just we, we, we had a broken office where, like, uh, you, maybe some of you know these shared spaces, right, where um, uh, all your windows are kind of people can see through it. So somebody was knocking on the door and I let them in And uh, um, because usually it's people down the hall saying they need a lawyer or they need something notarized or whatever. They want to offer me bagels or whatever. But like <laughs> he lets us in and then he flashes his badge. Everybody else, I don't know if this is a coincidence, but everybody else happened to not be there, including Tor, the person they wanted to talk to. Because our client was sending stuff in the mail, which... Uh, was being read, things about how Timothy McVeigh is a great guy and, you know, long with the white race and things like that.
1: I think this plays into sort of what, one of the questions that I had, which is, what is it like to stand up for somebody who, by your own admission, isn't the most savouriest of characters, who isn't the most, you know, gentlemanly of people... Uh, Why do you feel like it's so important to stand up for their rights even when I probably not every lawyer would do that?
2: Right, well any criminal lawyer would because you can't do what you can't do criminal law at all and Say well, I'm only going to defend the innocent or I'm going to defend the good or the ones with a great defense. You can't do it It's impossible Um, even on the civil litigation or whatever you do that you think you're fighting for the good fight you're going to get somebody and you're going to find out that's not the good person and you're, that's still your client. If you're asking how you can represent bad people or people did bad things or try to, quote unquote, get people off. I used to get asked this a lot because my father's a criminal lawyer for really violent, ugly crimes. It used to be that most of the answers I'd give weren't satisfactory to people, but but I'm going to give some of them to you. We're really fighting for all of you. We're fighting for the what protects all of you under the United States Constitution and whatever state constitution of the state in which you were charged. It's so important that anybody charged with a crime, regardless of what it is and regardless of who they are, has a lawyer fighting for them. It's one of the most important things we put in the Constitution, and it's also one of the things we put in the Constitution to make sure other protections you have in the Constitution exist. You all have them. You may not all be arrested. You may not all you know, need all those protections all the time, but I think you do. And they can only happen, and they get protected if you look at the case law, if you look at the Supreme Court cases you're known about. They get shaped by people who are accused of doing really bad things.
3: Let me interrupt. So yes, yeah, but so, that's
2: not the answer that I give that people, that satisfy people. But
3: go on. So <laughs> right. you mentioned, you know, we're talking about the Weave case, you know, yeah. com- about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and you mentioned the word that the, uh, the appeals court punted, you know, that was portrayed in the media. Yeah. That, I think that was my headline, but never... Okay. Never, yeah. never, <laughs> All right, then I'm never, glad I respond to it. Nevertheless, but the, the underlying issue about what he was charged under and how he was treated in terms of the law is still the same. What kind of things do you think should be changed in law or, or not, or, or, or something in the sense that it seems like, you know, we mentioned we were talking earlier about maybe if your Netflix, if you share your Netflix account, theoretically, that's unauthorized access. Yeah,
2: that's something you'll see, see along the line. I mean, the real answer to that is that's uncertain. I can't say you'll actually be charged with a federal crime if you share your network's password. I can say that the way the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has been overinterpreted in certain cases, the way it was in Arnheimer um, and the way it has' been in other cases, can really can theoretically affect things that you do think are innocuous, that you don't think should be a federal crime. And if there's a bad result from that, I think, what the federal government wouldn't necessarily go after you for sharing a password. So uh, I'm not for Netflix.
1: In I shared my Netflix.: I password. can't
2: say that, I'm not your lawyer. <laughs> um, if you can imagine a scenario where you do that and it has a really bad result I'm, I'm not sure. It's if somebody wants to think of it, go ahead. But like, then they might because they'd had that opportunity to to do that because that person didn't have access, that person didn't have authorization because you might have scrolled through, I don't know what's in the, um, this really happened. There have been prosecutions based on you're violating the terms of use. The thing you scroll through and you click I agree and nobody reads. There have been actual prosecutions based on that saying that if if you violated the terms of that, then you, then you access their website without authorization and, and nobody reads those. Now, as, as a matter of contract law, you're probably bound to those things, and, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about whether or not you can really be guilty of a federal crime. And what it'll usually take is not somebody who's so honorable like yourself, Cyrus, but somebody who's a bad person or somebody who's done bad things or somebody where or there's a bad result. Probably the most notorious example that we weren't a part of was Lori Drew. This is, uh, anybody familiar with the Lori Drew case, the woman who came up with a fake profile? She came up with a fake profile on Facebook or MySpace because her daughter was at, had like a rival at high school. And they made up a boy, and the boy would fall in love with this girl by chatting online. And then one day, that fake boy Says, I don't want to talk with you anymore. I I wish you were dead. And that girl killed herself. I can't defend Lori Drew for what she did. I know she did something really terrible. But she was charged with a federal crime. And with most of the allegations against her being dropped, here's the one thing that remained. The government argued that when you sign into your terms of use, You agree that you're the person you say you are. And because she was violating the terms of use by pretending to be somebody else, she was committing a federal crime. And if you buy into that theory, remember she wasn't actually like, her conviction was reversed also, but she wasn't convicted with anything connection with the death. She was convicted for her fake profile. If that doesn't get reversed, then theoretically you were all committing a federal crime by violating the terms of use on all those click-through agreements that you probably have agreed to a hundred of them, I'm pretty sure Mark Anything,
1: Zuckerberg's dog has a profile on Facebook.
2: Mark, right? And she's I under eighteen. So. It's you a click dog. A, a dog. A dog. I'm pretty sure Mark
1: Zuckerberg's dog has a profile. I thought on, on the Facebook.
2: internet nobody knows you're a dog. Uh, well, that too. Okay. But <laughs>
1: okay.
2: I don't, Mark Zuckerberg is violating Facebook's times? I know. Or the dog is. I. I don't know. Can a dog violate terms of use? I don't know. You'd have to ask Petta. I mean, I think, like, <laughs> you have to say you're over 18, right? So, like, um, if you're 16 and you lie, if the terms of service theory prevails, I always thought it was nonsense, you could be committing a federal crime. Oh, by the way, if you're 16 and you're here, you probably also shouldn't be here, <laughs> but I don't like that.
3: So, clearly, you know, it's very broad, but it doesn't seem to be. Applied that much and so what is is it really that big of a deal?
2: Yeah, because it's there I mean, we can't that, that's just not good enough. It's just not good enough. And eh, don't worry. We'll be cool with it We'll be very selective. We will only go after the really bad people. You can't have that Due process doesn't allow that
1: but isn't that I mean, I don't know just to just to play out his question for a second like, you know jaywalking you know, you're not, nobody's supposed to jaywalk, but, you know, I and probably everyone else in this room has jaywalked many times. Not me, no. You've never jaywalked?
2: No, I'm from New York. We don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but isn't there an element of,
1: like, prosecutorial discretion? Is there, do you have a sense of how often CFAA cases, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act cases, right. even get prosecuted?
2: Well, first of all, I don't know how you don't jaywalk in California since there's literally no time where cars aren't allowed to run you down. Like, do you have a sense of how often the CFAA cases are prosecuted? No, I, I, mean, think, I think they're trying to be selective and going after the bet. But what you're also going to see a lot of, and you do see a lot of, is angry employers. And, or, you know, where an employee leaves and uses information and they get really mad, right? That's, that's what was happened with Matthew Keyes. Yeah. A really angry ex-employer. And so the government may not be that interested, but once a big company gets interested, you will see more of those types of, uh, you can see more of those prosecutions, and you can also see them in the civil context, if they're that mad at things you might have done. So it's not enough to say, okay, it's there, but that's okay, the government will be cool.
3: But with the, with the Keys case, you're not arguing that it wasn't hacking for somebody <laughs> Uh, who gave out a password to the company that he worked for? Are you?
2: Well, again, the statute doesn't doesn't say hacking. We argue, first of all, that there was no damage and there was no loss, which are which are specifically defined in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. In that case, a website was changed for 40 minutes, and then it was restored so that nothing was lost. Uh, remember, you're not prosec- It's not enough to sustain a prosecution that what you did might have been bad. And that's to actually violate the statute, because it violates due process if it doesn't violate the statute that it was under. And that the jury has to find you guilty of every single fact accused and every single element of the law. And that comes down to, to some extent, to the damage, the extent of the damage, which is, we think was fabricated, to the, to the loss, of, of which we argue there was none, because no information was actually lost. And that was also the case, and in, in, I think it's really apparent for anybody who followed the trial and you look at it, you really did have an angry ex-employer. Now, without the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, their go-tos are a little more dip- difficult. There's trade secret litigation if you think they went ahead and gave something else away. But trade secret litigation is really hard. It's hard under the criminal context. It's hard under the civil law context. You have to establish a lot to to just make something a trade secret. I've had to do this on the defendant side and in the civil side, and I can't stand what people will pretend is a trade secret. And I've done it on the plaintiff side. And if you're an employer, try and you want to go after an ex-employee who you think is like, Using your stuff, usually the best advice I can give is don't do it. Um, it will bite you. It will bite you back. But on the on the criminal side, there's there's nobody to be bitten back, and and we are seeing it in that context. I think that's that's what we saw here. But the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act removes a lot of the things that make trade secret prosecution and litigation so difficult. You don't even have to prove the information taken or or allegedly taken was secret. Or meant to secret.
3: What about uh, let's kind of segue over to uh, some copyright stuff and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And we were talking before about uh, you know it would demand, say, uh, you know ISP to remove content that the copyright holder says is infringing and doing it in you know a timely matter. And the, a lot of like the RIAA and the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America. Recording Association of America. They're basically saying that in a sense It's bogus now that they would have to do that because they send Millions and millions and millions of takedown notices say for Google to remove from search infringing content And yet so they remove it and then it just it's like a you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole And so is there any validity to these claims or or not?
2: Uh, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Right, so the DMCA will give, very brief, a safe harbor, essentially immunity for copyright infringement actions for websites and internet service providers, so long as they adhere to certain statutory qualifications, the most important of which, as you say, is that when copyright holders send them a takedown notice, they take it down. And any of the big, Google, Facebook, all of them, have their own agents where if you think something is infringing, if you took that photograph, if if this is your story, you can get that taken down if you follow their procedures. Google gets reportedly something like a million, I don't know, it's like in the millions a day, It's, it's quite a bit. And this is, and if it follows that, it gets a safe harbor. It's essentially immune from these copyright infringement, right? The infringers aren't immune, but the websites are, the the ISPs, the internet service providers are. This has been around for a number of years. I I think Google and the like have got very much used to accustomed to being able to do what they do because of that, and you have many rights holders think it's insufficient because it takes so much work to send these notice and takedown notices and it doesn't prevent people from just popping it back up again and they have to keep sending notices and they don't get any monetary damages and it takes a lot of their time. I know, for instance, professional photographers who are are unthrilled with it because it's a good part of their work to send these takedown notices. And as you say, the various AAs think it doesn't go far enough. On the other side, you have users' rights organizations, the FFs and the public knowledges and the ISPs themselves who think that it's too restrictive. They don't like it because they think it's too easy for copyright holders to claim their copyright holders and to shut down fair use and print through the baby and whatever, and that's false, by the way, but that's what you'll read. I don't think it's always true when parties on both ends of a spectrum don't like something that we've reached a happy medium. But I would say to a large extent the DMCA safe harbor, in this case it does. We need to be able to allow them, the ISPs, the websites, to survive. And we also need to have a means of copyright holders to combat the copyright infringement that would just be rampant were it not some type of protection. And the DMCA Safe Harbor, in my view, you know, it has some flaws and it's, and in the internet world always makes things different because the facts change much quicker than the law does. But it's dragged a, a, a pretty good balance and the good ones have learned not to induce, which is what Grokester did and NAPS, basically all this, anything with a stir, right? They were encouraging and really trying to make their business over getting copyrighted works, where they weren't getting authorization for it. Google took it a step further and they tried to come up with provisions where copyright holders can actually get paid. Out of the demise of all the stirs, we got we got new services for music like Spotify and the like that work pretty well and do take efforts. I know people will dispute this, but do take efforts to get the rights. So it's, wor- it's worked out pretty well. What we haven't gotten as a result of the DMCA safe harbor is a lot of good authoritative case law. right? The nature of a safe harbor is this: If you do all these things, then you don't get, then you can't be sued for this. And it doesn't mean if you don't do all these things, you're liable. It just means you lose the safe harbor. But since Google and Flickr and Facebook and the like will follow these things. They have th- we don't see a lot of these lawsuits at all. And if we do, we're arguing over whether or not they're entitled to the safe harbor. What we don't know is if they didn't follow these procedures or not, whether or not they really would be liable for things that other people upload. We miss out on that. And we don't have a, th- aside from the United- uh, Supreme Court cited Grokestone and all that, but for the most part, we don't know the answers to that the safe harbor takes care of that and we get a system where these things can be taken care of it's essentially like what's happened a lot in, in copyright it it took people to bring lawsuits but then we get a regime right we don't see a lot we don't see a lot of sampling lawsuits because so many, and on the mainstream level so many samples are licensed right for instance and these these industry norms kind of take over. The DMCA Safe Harbor has helped these industry norms and standards to exist.
1: Cool. I wanted to uh, open it up uh, to anybody who has any questions.
2: I had a
0: Safe Harbor question because um, this has come up a lot in the news as we've been hearing about uh, Facebook's moderators who were the ones that were supposedly not taking down the murder video um, uh-huh. on Facebook. And one of the things that's come out of those stories is that you know, Facebook employs, according to Zuckerberg, thousands of people who are moderating content that's being uploaded by users. That's what he claimed. You know, these are probably um, not employees, but they're independent contractors. Do you think that affects the safe harbor at all? Or is that totally orthogonal to that well, question?
2: Well, there's, there's the DMCA safe harbor. And if there's ever something comes as a result of that the ugly Facebook video, there are CDA issues. Computer decency, communications decency. Right, which is completely different Safe Harbor, which essentially is going to let the websites off the hook for things that that other people upload and not make Facebook the publisher of that. And that doesn't apply to copyright. By its statute, it says it doesn't apply to intellectual property at all. And it doesn't require that, but for that immunity to exist, that doesn't require a takedown at all. So they don't have to take that down to get that immunity if they're third-party sued over that. And disclosure, uh, I'm representing a plaintiff for pursuing a Grindr over some really terrible fake profiles. Um, our client um, has been harassed, come out to... Um, some really ugly things have happened to him as a result of Grinder not taking fake profiles down. So part of what we're going to have to do is defeat the CDA, Community Decency Act, defense. They all have to take on some kind... If they don't take on their own... Obligations on their own, and I'm not saying they don't, they do, but if they don't become good at that, then they're going to see more lawsuits and they might see statutory change that they don't like. So, Facebook, if they see that video circulating and that video is hurting people on their end, they have an obligation.
0: So, that doesn't turn them into moderators. Oh, that
2: okay, that's that's another issue, right? You've got the moderator issue comes up under the DMCA, Harbor, and the CDA right? If we're going to take the attention to actually take down bad things, do we lose our safe harbor? Do we lose the DMCA safe harbor, which is a possibility under the recent Live Journal decision? Because we have moderators, because we're actually choosing what goes in there and what's not, and we're not really passive. And do we lose our CDA immunity because we're actually choosing and selecting on that? I I think it's not an easy question. It really... The, um, the CDA in particular is not well-drafted and it doesn't really answer that question well. And what the internet will do is everybody's going to come up with something new. And those lines are always going to blur. If you're familiar with the dirty cases, a lot of people write about this stuff. Or I think that's a great example where it really blurred. I think there's a moral and ethical obligation on the part of these. I think there has to be some balance where they're allowed to have some type of restrictions that don't, but they're taking those some type of actions and those some type of moderating doesn't mean they lose their safe harbor entirely. Because if we do that, it's counterintuitive. If you do that, then you risk the motivation of their being so passive they don't do anything at all, lest they lose that liability. So we do have to come up with, and I don't make those opinions on behalf of any client or anybody I represent, I represent websites. I, I have to advise them on things like that. And the worst thing, I think, for them isn't, isn't even a law that's bad for them. It's a law that's unclear. Right now, we need a little bit of clarity, and, but it's hard. Um, we're not going to get it all in case law. We have to get it through statutes, and it's very hard for, the statu- for, for statutes to catch up.
3: One of the, like, there's a cliche about law that, like, bad facts, like, lead to bad law, right? Have we seen any cases where, um, you know, the feds have brought a CFA prosecution that has led to a decision that's become law that's actually bad? So, like, most of the ones I think of, like, have been at some point vacated, um, whether on the right grounds or not, but are there actually examples where we've seeing the feds have been able to use that as a way to make bad laws, or it still just work as a big cudgel to go after defendants? I,
2: I think the bad law we're typically seeing is at the district court level. So, if, if, since you're bringing up appeals and vacation, you know, vacated verdicts, we've seen a lot of bad law vacating, right? Lori Drew, in my view, is the the best example of bad facts making bad law. She's really bad. What she did was really bad. And if that stays, then we've got something. That's, that's got to change or else we're all in danger, but that was vacated. But we still have things uncertain, and that's bad enough. The terms of service theory, which I always thought was nonsense, you violate the terms of service and something you scroll down and you say, I agree, you're committing a federal crime. I mean, that's still technically an open issue. There is also what also you see a lot with the employers. An ex-employee who used to have access to stuff takes off with that stuff and uses it and has that become use without authorization and I still what, what I think right now the problem is the uncertainty because it's all not resolved and you know none of this is going to the Supreme Court.
0: The tack that the federal government took when they were trying to uh, look at your client and what how they might use the similar tax. Uh, which client? Uh, which, Wait, your, The client that you're talking about. Though, the, the grinder case? Matthew Keyes. We, the we've. one with the shared the password.
1: Oh Matthew uh, Keyes? Matthew Keys. Yeah.
0: So I'm thinking about their their tack when they tried to figure out how to attack this guy that they thought is bad and how they might look at people who are whistleblowers, who are trying to do good, who are trying to get around, you know, the company like if a company has a passwords and controls and systems and right. we all think, hey, that that needs to be known um, in one way or another, and your thoughts on right. that process? I
2: don't think the government you know, cares much about who's a white hat and who's a black hat and who's a gray hat. If, if they want to see you as a federal criminal, they can they can make you into one. Even what we did, you know, was arguably a white hat type of, of thing. He brought it to the media and he said, look, you know, if, if there's a problem with security, the problem is AT&T's, because they made your email addresses so easily known. I don't. I, I think if they want to go after you, they won't have to care if what you were doing for the public good. And they can definitely take something you did that you believe to be for the public good, we talked about Derek Lohstutter, and make you into not. So, you know, you, you do run that risk. And, you know, we, we entertained. it seems kind of silly now, that maybe somebody's going to become like the catch me if you can guy. The hacker who's so good, he gets charged by the FBI and later works for them because he knows all the hacker tricks. But it's probably probably a fantasy to think that would have been Weave. For the purposes of the federal government, they may not be that interested too much that you're doing what you believe to be a public service. And that's difficult for the security researchers who are trying to build their businesses and doing a lot of things which you may not even consider to be unauthorized access, like what, what Arnheimer and his colleague did. You're calling attention to things that other people are making their data unsafe. But I don't think that's necessarily what the government is going to see. Now, we didn't talk about Derek Stutter. he's the one who helped expose actual rapists. And his reward for it was the federal government charging with a crime that would give him uh, the potential for actually way more jail time than the people who were who convicted for rape did. You can't rely on that. You can get the public sentiment. You can get a call from Tar and myself or somebody else who's gonna say, hey, you know, well, you know, we'll, we'll represent you and, and and make you look good in the eye of the public and get shout outs from Ars Technica and, and everybody like that. But if the federal government really wants to go after you, they won't stop at that. And they're really good. <laughs>
0: So Stuxnet, when it came out, right? There was a long period of time before the security researcher actually dissected it, made sense of it. This is a weaponized version of the government's code, right? So, what stops that security researcher from being in the eyes in the the eyesights of uh, the government? What stops the next security researcher from being, you know, picked on the same way?
2: Nothing. <laughs> Hide your tracks. Use a VPN. You like use things. They'll they get through that. They'll find that stuff. They're really good. You know, I, um, the trial lawyers that I've worked with on the keys and the Arnheim trial, they're they're excellent at what they do. They they don't have a cost benefit analysis in the sense that if they want to take all their resources to get at you, they will. If you're asking me what stops them, I don't think anything stops them. We do our best, but no. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps
1: it up for tonight. Thanks very much. Be well, and we'll see you next time.